Hello and welcome back to Brolly Buddies. After a little break we've had, we are back today. I'm Mia and usually I'm joined by my co-host Josh, but he's not actually here. Instead, I'm very excited to be joined by a special guest who worked on season one of the Umbrella Academy. The production design is a huge part of the show and so I am very, very happy to welcome to the show Arne Murr, who was an assistant art director on season one. Hi Arne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very exciting to be here. So before we kind of get into it all a little bit more, could you tell us about your journey into set design and kind of all of that world of wonder? Oh, that's part of why it's so exciting to be doing an interview, because I grew up in a world where I did not know anybody who worked in film. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. Where there there is technically a film industry, but it's it's quite small. So I, I never crossed paths with anybody who worked in film, and it was not even a reality. I think if someone had told me that was a thing you could do, I would have I would have probably jumped at it. But I didn't know, so I ended up going to university to study architecture, architecture, mm-hmm. landscape architecture, urban design. Um, and then when I finished that, <laughs> I went to go do an internship in Maui which was really incredible. Um, I had a friend who had done it and I told him, you're so lucky. Oh my God, I can't believe you're going to do an internship in Maui. And he said, well, you could too. He's like, I worked hard and I applied. You could too. So I ended up on Maui. I was there for six months on an artist date, working with an artist called Tom Sewell, who's an incredible man. And his best friend is a Hollywood production designer who came to visit while I was there. And I had never even heard of a production designer. I did not know what they were or what they do. Um, I was a little bit clueless in that regard. But then when he came to visit, and he was there for a few weeks, um, I learned a lot about what he did and what a production designer is. He described it to me as being the architect of a film. And I thought, well, that's so interesting. I was like, because I studied architecture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how does that apply? How is that different? And we had a, a lovely little studio there in Maui at the on the estate where we had a screen where we could project things. And we had, we had quite regular movie nights. So we did a bit of a film study of this production designer's films. His name's Dennis Gasner, and he had he's done quite a few really amazing pictures, but including actually one of my favorite movies of all time, which is Big Fish. And so we watched that. And he had actually also done the Truman Show and they were actually parts of the studio there that wow. had come from the set of the Truman Show because he'd sent it as a gift. And I was so, I was so shocked and I was so starstruck. <laughs> um, and he had just finished doing uh, the James Bonds. So <laughs> we were looking at clips of that and we were so excited. We went to the premiere in Maui and we were all, all went as a little group and we were all so excited. So anyways, getting to look at his films and getting to talk to him about the project he was about to start and, and him breaking down his script and explaining the process to me and explaining what a production designer is. I just became totally enamored with film and absolutely, it was absolutely life-changing for me. I <laughs> basically called home to my family. I said, that's it. Like, forget architecture. I'm going into film now. And they were so surprised. Um, (laughs) But of course I was on an Island at that point. So then I had to, I had to go back to North America and figure out how to break in, which was, which was a bit of a feat. Um, Mm -hmm. But I ended up going back to Vancouver and Vancouver has a very thriving film industry. And actually, I think I like, I got on a Greyhound. I got on a bus with, with basically nothing. And I said, that's it. I'm going to go into Vancouver. um, And I'm going to, 
work in film, whether it kills me. And I think basically within like two weeks, I had a job as an assistant. And then I think another two weeks after that, I was in the art department properly. So it moved pretty quickly. Yeah, film's really busy. <laughs> and wow. then I moved to Toronto, and now I'm working here in film in Toronto. Because I would say there's pro- that's probably the two biggest centers for film in tr- in Canada is Vancouver and Toronto. There there is film outside of that, but not quite as big. And here I am. Wow! So that's a really fascinating kind of way to have gotten into it. And I I mean I love like yeah, it just kind of seems very fitting the the architecture of uh, of film. Has it kind of um has it changed the way that you watch film and TV as well? Were you a kind of big film buff before or you know, what's what's that like relationship been like for you? And do you like now when you're watching stuff are you kind of thinking about like, "Oh, I wonder how they did that" or like that's, you know, x y and z? Oh, absolutely. You can't turn that lens off. And I'm sure I annoy my friends when I watch movies with them. we'll be watching a scene and I'll be like oh my god look at that graphic they did a great job on that or oh this set is kind of lazy you know they they probably they all they did was turn off the lights this could be anywhere Or, or oh my god this set is amazing like I um there's a great film that came out Passengers that yeah I mean, people had different opinions about it, but I just loved how it looked. Oh, I just loved the set design. And so I was raving about it for weeks and everyone was like, oh, you know, the plot was kind of predictable. And I'm like, but the sets, the sets were so good. Uh, so definitely, definitely changed my the way I look at films and my family now. I make my family and my friends wait till the end of the credits when we go see things now, you know, because I used to go see a movie and I would I would leave when it was over. But now... Everybody has to stay seated with me and we need to watch until at least 75% of the credits of Worldwide because too many people worked too hard to not be appreciated. So true. Yeah, I really agree with that. Um, cool. So in terms of the show, like my my co-host Josh and I are both kind of big fans of My Chemical Romance and Gerard Way and that led us to the Umbrella Academy comics, um, which then of course led us to the tv show so I was wondering sort of how did you end up working on the Umbrella Academy and did you kind of have any knowledge of it beforehand or was it a totally new thing to you? I had heard of Gerard Way before because I used to listen to My Chemical Romance I mean still do but they haven't been releasing obviously but um but now they're back very exciting very exciting (laughs) anyway sorry carry on (laughs) that part was really fun when I heard about it but often when films come we don't know what is coming and it's it's very it's it's based a lot by word of word of mouth mm-hmm. so sometimes you end up working on something really huge and you don't know that it's going to be huge or sometimes you work on something that doesn't do very well but the whole time you thought it was going to be great so mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're sometimes blind to that and I I ended up on Umbrella Academy by dumb luck <laughs> which I'm very <laughs> grateful for because it was a very exciting show to work on but I was working on a different show and one of the set designers on that show said she was leaving to go work on this big Netflix show that was coming up. And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm going to need a job. Who do I email? <laughs> she told me who to email. <laughs> and a week later, I had an interview. <laughs> and a few wow. weeks after that, I started. So f- film can be um, quite unpredictable in that way. I talk to my friends in different industries, and sometimes they go through interview processes that last six months. And I think that, that is so shocking to me because... Uh, some I've had I've had it happen that I get interviewed or I, I send out an email on a Saturday morning I have an interview by Sunday afternoon and I'm starting the job by Monday 
<laughs> so <Wow>. things happen <laughs> very quickly sometimes. Yes, it sounds like it. What does what does a, an interview kind of involve for like for a job like yours? Well, usually we're, I would have my portfolio. Yeah. As as a so I am I am an assistant art director, but my specialty within that is set design, and, and we can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, as a set designer, that means that I would bring a package of sets that I'd worked on, drawings I had made, what my abilities and skills are like. And I will sit with an art director and we'll go through my portfolio and talk about what my skill set is and whether or not that's appropriate for the show. But also checking personality fit because in film you spend so much time with each other. Yeah. <laughs> like 12 hours a day, you know, five days a week, sometimes more. So you have to make sure that you're going to get along. <laughs> so yeah. if you're able to have a good interview and laugh a bit with each other, it goes a long way. Oh, that sounds great. My next question was that, was, yeah, can you go into a little bit more about what your role was? So your, your job title is assistant art director, but what did that, what did that look like on the show? What does that kind of entail? And yeah. So I think the assistant art director title comes from, hierarchies elsewhere in the film world like assistant director um assistant production manager so that tends to be how the hierarchy works in other departments i do find the nomenclature a little bit confusing for people outside of film it's it's sometimes hard for me to describe what i do i think really it's easiest to just say that i'm a set designer but how the overall structure works is at the top of the art department you have the production designer And the production designer, like I said earlier, is the architect of the show, of the production. And Mm -hmm. so they work a lot on the overall vision. They work a lot on bringing together all the different elements. And they work together with the producers and the directors to make sure that the way the show looks corresponds to what the producers and the directors need and want. and, And also to give it vision and give it life. So they do a lot of meetings and and pitching and listening and discussion and vision building which is it's a really great job it's one of the funnest jobs but you have to do a lot of synthesis as well because you're you're bringing together an entire department and you're interfacing that with the rest of the production um versus underneath the production designer is the art director and the art director is a little bit more managerial so compare that to other industries like marketing or editorials where the art director really I think is more of the creative vision in film specifically the art director tends to be more of a manager and and I mean that will vary from show to show sometimes art directors have to step up to the plate and do some creative work as well but typically art directors are meant to manage things like time budget crew persona um managing different relationships within the show so if there's something happening that another department needs to know about like special effects they'll often do coordinating between different apartments so I as a set designer would usually get hired by the art director because they're managing crew and then underneath the art director the assistant art directors typically are in one of two categories either set design or graphic design and graphic design in film is huge it's so much work and it's the most overlooked (laughs) department (laughs) so many people don't even think about it but we need to do so much to make that world real for the viewers that graphic designers are so busy making all these little details that you don't even notice because we can't often can't use something like like a real a real normal ketchup bottle would, you know, has has logos mm. and branding on it, and that can create conflicts. And sometimes we do product 
placement, but typically that, you know, detracts from the story, right? So to make like, to make that world real, but also make it invisible (laughs) is a lot of work. So we've got a lot of assistant art directors who do graphics, and then we've got assistant art directors who do set design. And then there's some variation within that. So there are more graphic oriented assistant art directors who do like concept illustration and concept illustration is huge. I've been, I've been doing a lot of science fiction shows lately and oh my goodness, there's so much concept illustration to do. We employ a lot of, a lot of people full time with that, um, which is incredible. They do really amazing work and it's really creative. And I think it's one of the funnest jobs. Um, But then on the other side of that, the set designers will take concept illustrations or take napkin sketches or whatever the creative direction is. And we will turn that into construction drawings so that a construction crew can go and build it. Wow. Okay. And then we've got a few other outliers who like, we've got, we've got like 3d printing specialists or model makers who build models of the sets we were proposing so that we can describe it to the director or we've got our virtual virtual reality specialists who will pre-visualize the sets so that directors can plan their shots in vr before it even gets built whoa yeah that's very cool (laughs) (laughs) so on umbrella academy i was a set designer but i was also doing a lot of coordination so i was Uh, I was distributing drawings, making sure that everybody who needed a particular drawing got it, making sure that we kept good track of all of our drawings, especially when shows go on to multiple seasons. You have to be really careful about compiling everything that you've done so that people in future seasons, even if that's you or if that's somebody else, can reference a set that was built in a previous season, can reference a graphic that was published in a previous season, because you're always trying to keep your world consistent. So you have to have good archives for that. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine there's a, there's a lot to uh, kind of save there and keep, especially with a show like The Umbrella Academy. Like, and it, I, I guess it's true of any show. There is so much in all the little details. And, you know, for most viewers, you probably wouldn't notice it. But then if it was different, suddenly it's like, hang on, something's not quite right here. And um, I don't know, like one of the things that we really loved about The Umbrella Academy was kind of, how rich that world was and the sets and everything is it's just really stunning I think the aesthetic is so important in sort of setting the tone of the whole show like it plays such a huge role in it like maybe more so in kind of just like a a normal drama or something I don't know oh absolutely and in terms of sort of (laughs) the creative process for you know getting this vision together What's that like and what's the sort of inspiration behind the uh, production design and the the whole sort of direction of the show in terms of that aesthetic? And actually, one of of our listeners, MJ, asked, how much liberty were you given or did you take when adapting the show from the style of the comic books and what was that process like? So those those probably kind of, I don't know, there's probably a bit of crossover there in those questions. That's a larger problem slash opportunity of adapting books or comic books for film Mm. in general it's always the process of how similar do we want to make this film or tv show or how much do we want to deviate from it you know because sometimes if you try if you try to make it the same you miss out on a lot of creative freedom and then you get a lot of viewers who are sitting there keeping track of, oh, you know, this is slightly different or, you know, this is not exactly how they drew it in the comic book, right? So typically when you adapt something for 
for the screen, you try and leave yourself a lot of room for creative freedom so that it's inspired by the original work, whether that's a book or a comic book, but not necessarily a, a, just a, a straight up bringing it to screen. Yeah. So, and, and, I, and I think it's more fun that way for the different departments, because when you're trying to make it exactly the same, it can, it can impact everyone, right? Everyone mm-hmm. from costumes to props or even the screenwriters. So we took a lot of liberties on Umbrella Academy with adapting it and changing it. And I thought that really, it, it created its own piece. It made the Umbrella Academy TV show its own entity compared to the comic book so that mm-hmm. fans, I think, could be passionate about both but not necessarily have to cross-reference all the time so I think I think they work together as as a fan of both I would like to hope so but at the same time it was great to draw inspiration from the comics so before I started I didn't know how closely we were going to follow the comic books so when I when I found out I got the interview I of course went home and read all the comics and was (laughs) so excited and I it was interesting because in the comics they don't necessarily uh, paint out any of the settings very clearly. Yeah. So that, I, I mean, gave us a lot of freedom to begin with. But I remember actually one of the only sets I remember from the comic was the security room. It was like this this big room where I think number five was sitting and they just have like these towering, precariously balanced stacks of televisions arranged around him, mm-hmm. TVs. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, that's cool. But then if, that is one example of a set that we did a little differently. But the set we did on the show for the security room, I don't know if you remember, it was kind of looked like in the language of Hargreaves room. And there was yeah. a desk and some retro TVs and they were stacked quite neatly with labels and buttons and dials. And we gave it so much depth, you know, the, the comic book is just a quick illustration. Well, I shouldn't say quick, yeah. it's a lot of work, but the comic book <laughs> is, is an evocative illustration and not necessarily a, a highly detailed painting, you know? So we we have the opportunity to add in a lot of granular detail when we're bringing it to the screen. So we can have all those buttons and niles and dobs that would be distracting and overly detailed from a comic book but for a tv show is is that level of depth and detail that really brings it to life and makes it feel like a real world so that's the fun part of production design is making that world really cohesive and we had an incredible production designer for the first episode mark worthington and he put so much thought into what the backstory of this show and this universe and specifically the umbrella academy was it's just incredible. That's why why it feels so quirky and nuanced because he had this very elaborate vision of Hargreaves taking over a series of tenement buildings. Uh, have you heard of the tenement buildings? It's a, an area in New York. Um. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of in Greenwich Village area. I um actually went on a trip to New York while I was on the show. I think for a long weekend, and I went to the tenement buildings in Greenwich Village, and I was like, "This is so cool!" I actually, I actually preferred our take on the tenement buildings to the real life tenement buildings. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the tenement museum, and I actually looked at some of the details that we'd been referencing when we were drawing the the kids' corridor tenement style, mm-hmm. and. I thought, oh, our, our, this this museum is pretty good, but I think our details are like closer to the reference photos. <laughs> I was really, I was really impressed with us. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So, in in Mark's idea, Hargreaves had taken over these tenement buildings and turned it into a giant hidden mansion in some anonymous city because we we don't really specify where 
the Umbrella Academy is taking place. It's it's like it's Gotham. It's some anonymous city, yeah. right? But we did draw a lot of details from New York and Chicago to to bring that realism to it. Yeah. Versus in the comics, Hargreaves Mansion is sort of somewhere just outside of the city. Yeah. And and this was a difference that I thought was really compelling. Like I thought the way that it we designed it for the show was really interesting. The way it was embedded and hidden in plain sight with this very grand but relatively small entrance and then this just huge hidden mansion behind it hidden in the actual nooks and crannies of this of the city life because there was the way that he he conceived it there was a few tenement buildings side by side but he'd kind of gone through it perpendicularly so we had like an adjacent butcher shop that had once been part of that block that was now part of this mansion that we boarded up with papers and that became the kids area kitchen. And I thought that was one of the the coolest sets, but it also was part of this contrast between all the areas that Hargreaves had for himself, which were very grand, very well furnished, very uh, expensive with their finishes compared to the kids' area, which were falling apart, older, cheaper, darker, more bric-a-brac. And bringing that to our drawings and building that was a really cool process. Yeah. I mean, the mansion is just, uh, it's kind of obviously one of the sort of key settings of the mm-hmm. of the show, but it's it's just fantastic. It's like all the detail in it and the difference between every room. And I mean, I know there's some bits, I think, in Five's room, there's a thing, and I think other people have have picked up on it. Um, there's like a kind of I'm not going to use the right word. I don't know what it. It's like a bit on the wallpaper where it's kind of like um, you have like a little drawing of like a boy like pulling a little cart with a doll in it, and it's like oh my god, that's that's Five with Dolores like in the apocalypse <laughs> running around, and it's just the little details like that are amazing. Like where does stuff like that come from? So that was our graphic designers. They yeah. custom designed the wallpaper. <laughs> that's, that's that's the level of graphic design detail that I'm talking <laughs> yeah, about. Exactly. And, and normally it gets overlooked in a lot of shows, but it's really mm. fun to have such passionate fans who are seeking that out because that was absolutely thought of and that was um, absolutely part of making that a, a mm. special world. Yeah. We actually did Five's bedroom a little bit later on. A lot of the sets we built in the beginning, like most of the mansion and the academy itself was built before we started filming because we wanted to be able to move through the whole thing freely and because it took so long to in prep mm-hmm. to think of it, design it, and build it. Yeah. Um, but number five's bedroom came later, actually. Mm, interesting. Did you, so what sets did you work on and did you kind of, was there a favorite or did you have one that was like particularly great to sort of see it in the show and like sort of really brought to life with the with the scenes taking place in them it's funny you made an instagram post about <laughs> our interview and you said oh we're gonna interview Anmer." and in the background of your of this instagram post you used a shot from the exterior academy apocalypse set and i was like how did she know <laughs> that's my set that's my favorite set I actually don't know how you knew that. I was really I impressed. Just, I think I'd seen it at some point on your Instagram story oh, um, that you'd mentioned it. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm going to just put this and hope that I haven't remembered that wrong. <laughs> but, um, no memory. Yeah, right. Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. Well, I, because I've working on coordination, I had a small hand in quite a few sets. Uh, mm-hmm. So... 
I was also very proud of the great hall in the living room. They were, they were a big team effort in a lot of ways, but mm-hmm. um, I have a pet love of the apocalypse set because I got to draw that one completely myself and manage it. And that was a lot of fun to go from looking at a drawing to looking at the built thing and being like, Oh, that, see, there's that thing that I drew right there. Of course, the exterior of the Academy was actually in its non-apocalyptic form. It was actually a location mm. in the, in Hamilton. And we did a few things to the exterior to spruce it up, make it our own, make it a little bit more grand. So that was done by a few other set designers who they, and who I love and they did a great job. And so then when I was drawing the, broken down apocalyptic version of the exterior academy i was referencing their drawings so i was drawing something that referenced their drawings that was referencing the real life exterior so something that really meta like that but it was still it's still a lot of fun especially because when we went to set that day to shoot that exterior apocalypse um it was very exciting to see these huge green screens we shot that in a parking lot this was all out in the open air and there were all these departments with their trucks and and fog and smoke and special effects making fire and ash everywhere and these giant green screens being held up by cranes because we were out in the open air and not in the studio so it was it was a bit of a chaotic set but it it worked beautifully yes I mean that whole scene is incredible I love that that it's one of the best sequences, I think, in that episode where you where you see where number five has been and you've got like the whole kind of flashback, I guess, of, of, of the moment when he went and he's like running and running and running and then suddenly he's there and it's just like it's so dramatic. It's brilliant. It like it works perfectly. So, yeah, I love it. And I think the fact as well that like like you mentioned before, you have the 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 mansion is, is it's in the city it's not just kind of off on its own and on a hill somewhere like it is in the comics and it mm-hmm. it adds so much it's kind of it's not just like oh the academy's been destroyed it's like everything everything is gone <laughs> what is happening <laughs> uh and we had to do that a number of times it was funny i we started off with, with our drawings just saying apocalypse but then mm. it started to become a problem because we kept shooting the apocalypse for different episodes and so we had to start differentiating one apocalypse from the other. You know, is oh it God. <laughs> is it like fresh apocalypse or is it the apocalypse once number five is an old man? <laughs> Which part of the apocalypse? Is it the destroyed library or is it the rubble by the exterior academy or is it anonymous apocalypse? It was starting wow. to become a very, especially because <laughs> a lot of the apocalypse sets is just piles of rubble, mm. which makes it quite different from a typical architectural drawing you know you're, you're you're drawing this weird blob on the paper <laughs> hoping that it it looks like the pile of rubble and that someone can distinguish one from the other I actually wish we'd had a drone on that show it, it, in hindsight that I, I think would have made it a lot easier because you just just throw the drone up in the air and you can get a good aerial shot of what all the different piles look like but but we didn't mm. so we would walk <laughs> around these piles of rubble with tape measures sometimes oh covered God. in snow <laughs> trying to pick out reference points to to give it some kind of some hope of accuracy (laughs) yeah um other sets that I felt a special attachment to were Klaus's bedroom and Klaus's bathroom Klaus's bathroom was a lot of fun for me that was that was my set too and 
um, Mark Steele was production designing that episode and he had a really quirky vision of this bathroom that didn't make any sense and was, was quite cobbled together. So he had a few ideas for references and then he wanted some of the bathroom to just not make sense. Like that was the aesthetic of the kids areas within the, the mansion was that it, it was a kind of architectural palimpsest where you could see what had been there before, but you could also see what had then been adapted for and then how it had decayed over time and what it was today there was supposed to be a very layered set so Mm -hmm. as opposed to let's say if you were if I was working in an interior design firm and I was designing a bathroom everything should look good right everything should make sense and and be resolved and have clean lines and trim dyeing properly into corners and but when we were designing this bathroom we were trying to make it look a little off and a little weird <laughs> so that's one one thing I like about working in film you know and like the apocalypse set like here design something that's destroyed yeah <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of fun and then Klaus's bedroom was a lot of fun because not only did I draw the walls for it <gasps> then the scenic department needed references for how to make Klaus's room look more bohemian and more his own because Klaus is so particular with his personality. Mm -hmm. So our graphic department thought, well, why don't we, we draw all over the walls as if, you know, Klaus is some rebellious angsty teenager just drew all over his walls. I don't know if you remember seeing that. Mm-hmm. So then our graphic designers were, were like, oh, gosh, what are we going to write in these walls? Like our scenic department <laughs> is going to actually do the writing, but we need to provide them with references. Like, what do we do? And they're like, OK, guys, like, do you have like old journals? And I think th- I think they were joking, but I had old journals that I could <gasps> <put. laughs> I, I, I had a lot of angsty, terrible but also amazing poetry to give them. And I actually, I, I had it all digitized too. So I sent them, I sent them um, all my angsty, youthful poetry and writing and they gave it to our scenic department and it was so surreal. I walked into Klaus's bedroom when they were getting, they were dressing it and they were painting it and I could see this team of painters with Sharpies writing my diary on the wall of Klaus's bedroom. And it was just the strangest moment I've ever had. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talk about putting your whole self into the set. (laughs) That is a lot of fun. And then it was doubly (laughs) surreal because we used that, that room for something else. So they painted it over. This this is often what happens. Um, Mm -hmm. We've got whole teams of people who make sets look like something else and they have to change it back, back again. Sorry. But so they painted it all over and then they had to draw it all again. <laughs> so oh that God. was really funny. And, but <laughs> I don't think you can actually read any of it on camera. And especially when you are reading something on camera, it should come from the writers. Mm. You know, if it's a hero item like that, the writers should think of what it is and, and should give it that backstory. But this was meant to be more background. But when you're trying to make something background, you, you always have to think of the details anyways, just in case, you know, we, we yeah. write those magazine articles usually as a, as a, as a background piece. If it's a hero piece, if it's meant to be on camera, the writers will write it, but just in case the camera grows up to it, that, that's why I got my name on that magazine cover. Like n- no writers sat down and thought to themselves, Oh, you know, on her, she's famous, but our graphic designer saw, well, we have to make this magazine believable in case it gets seen. And then it did get yeah. seen, right? So we're, we're yeah. always thinking of much more detail than we need to just in case. Oh, wow. Do you know, it's funny because I think 
And I was just trying to look back at some of my notes from watching the show, but I can't, they're too scribbly all over the place. But um, there's, there are some bits where like, I think you can read it, but whatever it is, it felt like it was very, very like relevant to the character. So I don't know whether like you just have like a, a deep, from your teenage years, connection with Klaus, or if that was like, a, <laughs> oh, maybe the writers have been like, let's have this little thing in there. Um, uh, I, yeah. I, I think the, the painters <laughs> added a few of their own bits. Yeah. Um, that was some of the, some of the bigger ones, but, but, you know, I relate to Klaus on a deep level. I, when, uh, I was going <laughs> to say Klaus is my favorite character, actually. I didn't think that when I read the comic books, but yeah. from the show, Klaus is my favorite character. He's yeah. A, they're quite different. He's a lot more human, I think, in the, in the show in a different, you know, in a different kind of way. He's, or he's more like vulnerable. Um, and he sort of brings a lot of humor to it as well. Yeah, it's always interesting to see how actors adapt that and bring their own flavor to it. I just mm. think Robert Sheenan is just the greatest. I absolutely love him. And he was one of the nicest people to actually meet in person, too, whenever we bump in, bumped into ac- actors in the kitchen or in the hallways or whatnot. Um, I mean, everybody on Umbrella was really nice. It was, it was great. We, I, we didn't have any situations of anybody being a diva or anything, but I would say mm-hmm. that Edward Sheenan in or sorry, Robert Sheenan in particular was one, <laughs> was one of the loveliest people to bump into in the kitchen because he was just so, so kind. And he, oh, he's just such, a, such a presence in any room. Oh, so, I can imagine that. It was extra fun getting to design his bedroom and the bathroom that he, he for some reason, he's the only person who ever occupied that bathroom. So we called the class's bathroom, even though <laughs> it was not particularly his, but. Did Robert Sheen know that uh, you that his his room the set of his room was covered in your diary? <laughs> no, I I didn't bump into him around that time, but I should have told him. That would have been really funny. Yeah. <laughs> if I ever get the chance to talk to him again, I will tell him. Robert Sheen in my diary. <laughs> this was you know between takes is good. There's a very good chance that he was reading the walls while he was waiting for them to... Yeah, yeah. yeah thinking, God, who wrote this? this is, they've really gone, gone all out here. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the kind of little Easter eggs and like your, your name being on the, um, on the magazine in that, um, in that episode where I think Alison is seeing the, uh, her, her ex and her daughter on the cover of the magazine. And then there's a little bit where it's, it's you. Um, so what other kind of, I think like there's like a couple of other things I've seen, like maybe on a billboard where it's like, oh, like there's the names of some producers or like whatever else, like what other kind of things that have been like hidden in the show or were there any, I, I don't know, like are there any kind of like standout ones or like particularly fun things that the that, that you guys sort of hid in the set? Well, there's the larger question of what counts as an Easter egg because... <laughs> Technically, I think Easter eggs originated in video games, and it was it was a, it came from a, a point of authorship where the video yeah. game producers wanted wanted you to find out who made it, and they wanted you to find this thing that had was just about credit and about discovery and about seeking it out. Um, and so, I think sometimes in shows we're really trying to do that, like with the wallpaper with Klaus, we we wanted that to be a detail that tied it all together. But at other times, it's it's really for utility. <laughs> Like, and not, not to not to burst a bubble. It's just like a reality of working in film that I certainly did not expect before I started in this industry is that clearances and mm. and legal issues with names is a huge deal. 
And I never would have expected that. That's why our graphic designers, well, one of the reasons our graphic designers are so busy is because we're having to create everything from scratch because it's become such an issue Mm. of seeing your name or your brand or something that you've done on screen without your permission. To the extent that we actually have people who's who uh, their full-time job is getting in touch with different companies in order to and individuals to get their permission to use things because it's just so much work to do everything from scratch, right? Sometimes you yeah. want to have an art piece hanging on set and you don't want to hire someone to make a custom art piece for the show, especially because, you know, in part because that takes a lot of time and in part because you like this art piece and you want it there, right? So we have to have people get in touch with those artists and, and send forms and get their permission and the same thing goes for using people's names on camera, weirdly. Yeah. So a lot of the time we end up using crew names because having people's names on set is often part of what makes it real. And yet using and making up names is a, is a large legal process to the extent that you have to send them a list of names for approval. And then you have to get lawyers to take a look at it and do searches and get back to you so and sometimes those don't even sometimes that's not even allowed sometimes it's it disrupts from from the world too much i've been on other shows where they just say you know what no names we're just going to put numbers or something um but then of course that makes it really fun for the people who work on the show because we end up having our names all over the place and i think my favorite instance of that is when your name ends up on a whiskey bottle which is hilariously common. I'm sure that's happened to almost everyone who has worked on a film show, is that your name has been on a whiskey bottle somewhere in the background. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, I, I see that frequently, even, even on space shows, because people still drink whiskey in space, weirdly. <laughs> um, so... I wouldn't say necessarily that it was very intentional for us to scatter our names throughout the show and, and like we're not expecting fans to like go cross-reference the imdb and to every magazine article they see on camera and yet that's what the fans are doing and i think that is marvelous and surreal and absolutely hilarious <laughs> um but if you want to do that there's lots of instances where that happened i was working more on set. So I wasn't totally paying attention, but some of the, some of the times when we all were laughing about it, some of the best instances of that are the tombstones in the mausoleum. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that was surreal seeing my name on a grave. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and everybody else's, you know, all all my, all my friends in the art department, all of us dead in this mausoleum. Um, as well as I think the other best example is the posters in the boxing gym had different crew members and then that one was really funny because you've got different crew members facing off in in so-called famous boxing matches right and so we we actually took a bunch of copies of those posters and we had them hanging everywhere you know but it wasn't it wasn't just the art department we had members of the production team we had people in, in construction and paint who had their names on boxing gym posters so everywhere you go for season one umbrella academy behind the scenes there were just random boxing match posters everywhere with different people facing off people who normally get along i'll have you know (laughs) (laughs) um that's brilliant so you kind of mentioned that you've worked on like you've you've done a bit of work on some other sort of very sci-fi shows and stuff um but i was wondering what's what was sort of different about working on the umbrella academy compared to other shows that you've worked on uh, excitement. Uh, and I think most shows try to be, try to generate a sense of excitement. And 
positivity, <laughs> you know, I should hope. But especially on Umbrella Academy, when I joined, I was calling everybody in my family. I was like, this is going to be big. You know, our showrunner, Steve Blackman, was really great for creating that atmosphere. And, and he's, he's astoundingly charismatic and did a great job of every time you bumped into him, you know, you felt like, this is it. We're working on something really big. This is really special. You know, he, he did a great job of creating that culture on the show. And that was really fun, especially when we were in early prep, because sometimes, but towards the end of a show, you're just, you're going from episode to episode, you're prepping one episode while you're shooting another things come, things are coming up. You're, you're, you're trying to stay on top of it. But so that sometimes at that point, you're just so frazzled but in early prep when you're still a a little more able to take your time with things and really curate your ideas pitch something really interesting and work on developing something really special like that was a really magical time the first few months of umbrella especially were very special were you there as well for like while shooting was happening, is it all kind of going on simultaneously? And were you sort of there on set while while they were shooting? We tend not to go on set very much. Mm-hmm. Um, we will go and open set in the art department. Typically, that's the art director who will go and open set. That's what we call it when it's our first time shooting on a particular set. And we've been working really hard to deliver it on time. And the day comes and our shooting crew is there and the lighting department is lighting it and the actors are getting ready. The directors are doing blocking and the art director will be there to, to field anything that comes up, any emergencies. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted more posters. Why don't you have more posters? Or, Oh, we need a carpenter to cut this beam out of the way. What is this doing here? This is in the middle of my shot. <laughs> <laughs> so typically the art director will field those kinds of questions and, and emergencies. <laughs> I mean, ideally there are no emergencies, but you never know. Uh, and then after that, we move on to building the next set, right? We'll often go and visit our sets when they're shooting just to see what's working, what isn't, how mm-hmm. they actually lit it, how different it looks from what we were imagining. Try and try and learn from that situation and try and uh, appreciate it. So that's typically when we go to set. But usually we're going to set before anybody's there. You know, we're, we're scouting a location weeks before we're planning on shooting it. We're yeah. we're measuring an empty stage to make up our plans for what we're going to build on it. That the vast majority of the time that we spend on set as people in the art department tends to be before <laughs> before yeah. anybody else is there. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But of course, sometimes we go, so that's always fun. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite thing about your time on the show? The art department was so cohesive and it was such a wonderful little family I was I was thinking about this and I was like I don't know if that's actually that interesting for your viewers but that that's the actual reality of any job is just how great the people you work with are Mm -hmm. um it's like one of my friends is working in the food food industry at some sort of like chain cafe or something and on the surface level, it doesn't sound that glamorous, but she's like, oh, it's a, gr- it's a great time. I really love my coworkers. It makes all the difference. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And on the inverse, you can be working on one of the most exciting, biggest franchises uh, in on a really incredible show, but the actual people you're working with sometimes are absolutely terrible and you can't mm. stand it. So the Umbrella Academy was a great example of working with the most wonderful people. We were so close. 
uh, some of my best friends are from Umbrella Academy now. (laughs) And it was a lot of, it was a lot of time being exposed to one another. And, you know, after a few weeks, we, we got closer. And by the end of it, best friends. (laughs) <laughs> we would have like wine and cheese get togethers and we would order apple fritters on special days like birthdays and different outings for ice cream or dressing up on different days I remember on my birthday everybody decorated my desk with post-it notes and, and big inside joke printouts and it was I could barely sit down <laughs> on my desk it was so decorated so you know what that, that, that's what makes a, a show really wonderful yeah um, as well as one of the best things about our team was that we had some really incredible uh, hand drafters. We had some industry veteran set designers. And especially when we were in, at the most busy time, I would come in. And this was kind of around December and it would be still really dark out. And I'd come in, it's cold. Everything, everywhere else in the building, no one has arrived. All the lights are off. And you come up to the art department and there's this warm glow of of lamps on as our hand drafters are sitting at the back of the room at their drafting tables, playing like soft jazz and drinking their tea and drawing these works of art. It's absolutely stunning. I actually stole a couple of their drawings I mean, with their permission at the end of the show. And they're <laughs> framed in my apartment because they're just absolutely works of art. These that we, we had wow. a Brett McGilvery and Michael Madden, especially were just brought so much artistry to their work that <laughs> I don't know what I like better. The end set, build that we did or the original drawings they're just absolutely beautiful and I learned so much from them and to some extent that's a dying art you know I think wait a few more years and we won't have any hand drafters in the industry at all but right now I'm getting to witness the witness this magic as it as the sun sets on it (laughs) yeah I mean that sounds incredible and like it's such a nice thing to take home from work as well some nice art for your uh for your home (laughs) yeah my original never letting go of it (laughs) (laughs) so what were some of the kind of biggest challenges specifically about the umbrella academy that great hall for the uh, interior of the academy was so much work it looks amazing it's probably Mm -hmm. one of the more ambitious sets i've ever worked on and it was a lot of work to deliver that (laughs) we were working with a number of different set designers to make that happen so I'm talking about both the great hall and the adjacent living room and it's of course so nuanced there's actually two different architectural styles totally different we've got Jacobian in the great hall and we've got Moorish in the living room because that was the nature of the character Hargreaves was this Mm -hmm. was this man who travels and collects things for his own purposes and so he was able to appropriate things however he wanted in his own personal grand space right so we we really wanted to capture the extravagance and the curatorial nature of his character so that meant that the finishes in both of those sets had to be really lavish Uh, of course it's still it's still film so we're not necessarily putting real marble in or anything but even even trying to fake an expensive finish is is quite expensive so we had we had scenic like paint members of the paint department applying that really special wallpaper in that uh, uh in the living room like around the clock for weeks it was crazy and, and our graphic designers worked, worked for weeks on that wallpaper um that was greg gilmore did that and he was printing out so many different samples of wallpaper he worked so hard on that and it looks so good and that was just one tiny detail even our set decoration department worked so hard finding all of the right different 
vases and tables and couches and decor and all these different and and it was quite an ambitious scale because it was mm. so big and there was so much to decorate and so much to finish and so much to do and personally uh we were working with a set designer in LA for a lot of that and he would send his over, over his 3D models and I would break it down and put that into drawings and get our construction crew to understand the set and even our producers to understand the set one of my favorite memories from that period was taking that 3D model of this huge ambitious set and putting it into a video game engine called Unity. And then I would do walkthroughs with the producers and the directors of this set so that they could understand the space and what they could do with it so that they could approve it and we could start building it. So we would, it was, it was a really fun moment is moving through this kind of video game with the director, with the, with the arrow, arrow keys. And he was making jokes like, Oh, you know, do, can, like, can we shoot anything? Like what, what kind of weapons do I have? And I'm like, no, all we can do is move through this, but it, it gives a, it was a really good idea of, of what you're going to do. And especially weeks before anything exists. Right. So it's becoming more and more common. I've worked on a couple shows now that have VR specialists, especially for that, so that we can, we can understand the space because not a lot of people are very good at reading drawings. And even if you are good at reading drawings, nothing really compares to actually standing in the space. So yeah, the great hall really quite challenging, but really rewarding. Yeah. I mean, it looks incredible on the, on screen, but yeah, I guess, uh, I guess there's like, this is like one sort of area of 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 work and of the industry where like technology must be just kind of playing such a huge role in changing like how things are done like using vr using all things like that to be able to to bring things to life ahead of mm-hmm. ahead of shooting anyway you kind of already said your favorite character is klaus um what what do you love about klaus oh i love his sense of presence i i, I don't know if he's if his power is the power I would want, because that, of course, is quite dark. But I think that's probably part of what I what I like so much about him as a character is I think mental health is a really important issue to talk about versus mm-hmm. Alice, like, for example, Alison's superpower, which is probably the superpower I would <laughs> want, regardless of the fact that she struggles so much with it. That's probably <laughs> the most desirable one, the capacity to will things into existence just by saying it. But Klaus's power gift however you want to refer to it of of being able to talk to the dead and the and the ramifications on his psychology are mm-hmm. i think are really interesting because even though most people well even though no one can actually talk to the dead i think that capacity to be haunted by the past or trauma is very real and the way that he struggles with it the way that he copes negatively with it and then tries to grow from that I think is one of the more relatable things on the show yeah Uh, and I think that's a great thing to bring awareness to I think Sheenan does a great job with it and I think that issue is close to my heart because I think it's so real so yeah he's my favorite character for that reason but no I would not want his superpower (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it is um it, I, they they bring that the the sort of downside of it to life so well and and how it sort of shaped his whole character and I mean it's incredible but I think it's right you know I think I think he's a character that a lot of people relate to and a lot of people find very lovable like there's a there's a big Klaus fandom <laughs> and Klaus and Ben as a as a duo yes are, are just great I love them I love them both so have you got any fun stories from set that you could share with us. 
Um, I've told a bunch of them already, but <laughs> I was trying to save them for yeah. this question, but then I got ahead of myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I've got like a couple little tidbits, like a couple little moments I keep with me, with me that just sort of, I think, bring to light that these are real people with real lives making these television shows, you know, that that our life making Umbrella Academy is not like the Umbrella Academy. It's just we're just regular <laughs> people. And I think that's so funny. Um, like, like one funny time was we went through Halloween on it. And at that point we had both Mark Worthington and Mark Steele at the head of the art department. And Mark mm-hmm. Steele is a, a hilarious man and B exceptionally talented at carving jack-o'-lanterns so he brought in two pumpkins that he had carved and the likeness was remarkable like you absolutely could tell immediately that this is what they were meant to look like but he brought in pumpkins that looked like him and the other mark (laughs) so we just we just had them like lit all day and it was funny because at that point because they were both named mark we'd say oh we got i gotta run this by the marks then you 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 know you'd, you'd look at the pumpkins like oh no not those marks the other marks (laughs) so that was that was really cute and those are the kinds of things that I think people don't know about when they watch a show like these are these are people with their own inside jokes making this show um I also I love that I got to work with a lot of really amazing art directors on this show um one of my favorites was Greg Chown and he was just he was just so fun and he's a, a very very talented with drawing and so anytime he needed to explain anything he would pull out a pen and paper and draw it for you to the extent that there were times when sometimes he didn't have paper and he would just draw on whatever he could draw on. And we were on the apocalypse set one day and he (laughs) wanted to describe the elevation. I don't remember what exactly, but he pulled out his permanent marker and just started drawing an elevation right on the cement. (laughs) Just wherever he could draw, he would draw. Um, And we actually had to bring that this is another surreal moment. We had to talk about that apocalypse set. So we built a model of it. I built a lot of models on Umbrella Academy. That was one of the things that set it apart for me. All of the model building that I did in my career in the film industry was on that show. I don't know how many, most of the, you know, they all end up in the garbage in the end because, you know, you built the real thing, but we, we had a model of the apocalypse set or one variation of it that I think evolved as our different apocalypse sets evolved, but we had to talk to a director about it. And of course the director was down on set filming. We could, he couldn't get away to have a meeting. So Greg Chown and I pick up this foam core apocalypse set and we're like carrying it down the hallway and like through doors and onto set. And we're like squeezing through people. And we're like, sorry, we just, we just gotta, we have to show this apocalypse to the director. Like just, we just need a minute with him. And we're like there bathed in the light of the set lighting and <laughs> pointing wow. out at this little apocalypse set to the director just between takes just to make sure that he gets from it what he needs and <laughs> I, and that kind of thing happens a lot actually I think anybody who listen who works in film and, and listens to this will probably say well of course you know that's how it goes <laughs> but <laughs> these were things that I think when I when I step outside of it and I think about it from the perspective of people outside of film I'm like this is what it's like um or any level of destruction uh one of the coolest departments is the special effects department and i got i I got to go on a meeting for a walkthrough through a set with the directors producers and special effects and we were talking about the final umbrella academy fight scene Mm -hmm. because it's just it's difficult you know to make something look destroyed quickly and in a way that actually still keeps the set standing because we need it safe for people to be there right and of course when you start tearing down the walls you'll see that it's the studio behind it right so you have to 
you have to be really strategic with that. So what special effects does sometimes in these situations is put squibs on the wall. And those are little like packets that explode on and and they they can wire it so they can time when they explode and they'll explode with, with blood or ash or whatever they need. So they had these little squibs everywhere that would, would explode with dust to make it look like the walls had been shot. And we were doing this walkthrough and we were planning out where all of these imaginary bullets were going to go. And our special effects coordinator had this little pack of cheerful green post-it notes and he was just walking around (laughs) slapping green post-it notes everywhere. And it looked so absurd. (laughs) And then of course it looks great on camera, but without any context, like, and we're so lucky that we we actually can do that. And we're not just stuck with little green post-it notes everywhere. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, yeah, one of our listeners, Jenna, asked particularly, "What's your funniest memory from helping make the show?" So, was it w- would it that you can share? Would it be one of those that you have just shared with us already? Oh yes, probably. If I think <laughs> of something else, though, I'll get back to you. <laughs> without any, um, I know it's always the hardest to. <laughs> always the, the funniest things are always the personal matters. Obviously, exactly. like I, everybody in that department knew everything about my personal life because we all sat in one room, <laughs> and I was at a particularly tumultuous period of my life. And now, now I see people, and they're like, "Oh, how are you doing?" Like how's it going I'm like oh I'm great I've got a great great partner great great apartment great life and they're like oh I'm so glad everything worked out for you (laughs) (laughs) so yes the funniest thing I think always comes down to the different antics between people and you know running running around working with different people meeting different people sometimes like a a daily comes onto the show that you've like gone on a date with before or something like that and of course it all gets very dramatic and but that that happens on any show and that's always like I think one of the funniest parts but in terms of specifically being related to the Umbrella Academy and the actual like plot and storyline, I think definitely having my diary on the walls of Klaus's bedroom was the funniest for me. Um, as yeah. far as like incidentally, and of course there's always funny things that happen with, you know, you take down a set and, oh, actually we are going to shoot in there anyways, or, or the one measurement you didn't take is the one measurement you need, but that, that always happens. Yeah. Do you have any advice for anyone else who's wanting to pursue a career in set design? This is my chance to promote (laughs) my friend's blog because she is amazing. And I would start by reading Rose Legace's blog. Rose is a local Toronto production designer and her blog, Art Departmental at artdepartmental.com. So that's like art and then department and then ental as if you're going crazy because you go crazy. Um, I actually discovered her blog way back before I ever moved to Toronto. And I've been reading it for years because there aren't a lot of really great up-to-date resources about what the art department is all about. Like when I, when I started to break in and I knew nothing, I knew nothing. I came from, from architecture. I knew nothing about film. I never went to film school. I, I didn't really know how anything worked and I was really lost. And so I kept asking for advice and people referred me to some good books, but some of the books that exist are very, very outdated referencing movies that I having never gone to film school, I'm, they're great movies, but I had never watched them. I, I didn't really know what was going on. They're still talking about filmmaking in Hollywood back in like the fifties. And of course it's evolved a lot since then. So I really, really appreciated a really modern resource. Um, Rose posts a lot of relevant things like 
reading list guides, articles, and she does interviews. And she actually did a great interview with Jim Lambie, our amazing set decorator on Umbrella Academy, and he goes really into depth. So anybody listening to this podcast, if you're enjoying hearing about what it's like to be in the art department on Umbrella Academy, I highly recommend to go read their interview. He has the set decorator perspective, so some of his details are a little bit more specific to that. So he's got like photos of different fabric samples for wall hangings and carpets and what it was like to purchase light fixtures and couches. So that that was a, a different perspective, but also very granular, very, very interesting. And he does a great job of describing the show from that perspective. So I would really recommend going to go read that. Amazing. We'll We'll pop a link in for it. And is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to point people to? Well, I wish that I could. I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it, but this is the bane of my existence. Here I am talking about a project that in my mind it was two years ago. <laughs> I try yeah. not to remember these stories. And I'm like, I don't know. What was that? What was happening then? Um, I do recommend that listeners check out The Expanse. It is quite different from Umbrella Academy but it is also a very rich and detailed world with great characters. That was what I was working on last year. It's on Amazon Prime now. There are a few seasons out already. Uh, I mentioned that I've been getting into sci-fi lately, and that is one of the examples. It's a really richly detailed world that is based on a a book, the, The Expanse series, and I find, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, there's a trend lately of books being adapted for, film and television and I find that some of the better TV shows tend to be based on books just because there was some other writer mm-hmm. or world builder who thought everything through originally so then by the time film productions get to it they can you know they don't have to argue about where the story should go so I yeah. find that's very helpful great okay fantastic is there anything else before we before we go that you would like to share with the listeners or, or uh, you know the world at large if you're interested in working in film and this is something that appeals to you like do your homework figure it out figure out what your local union is talk to them about how you can get involved what the process is because it's a very rewarding very tiring but very rewarding industry <laughs> uh, and nothing has really compared to the magic of coming together with people to work on a big thing and to dissolve into the teamwork of it and the camaraderie of it. When I first heard about film from Dennis Gasner way back on Maui, that was what he talked about the most is just the magic of being together with this team of people to make something so surreally beautiful. And that's why, that's why you stay. That's why you do it. That's why you put up with the long hours. It's because it's, even though like I was describing some of the behind the scenes things don't always come off as that magical. It's, it still feels like you're, the luckiest working in the coolest industry every day so thank you very much for having me (laughs) thank you so much for joining us on it's been really lovely chatting to you and hearing all about your time on the show and all these other little sort of tidbits um it's been really fantastic so thank you so much and thank you for spending such a long time talking to me today (laughs) oh my pleasure thanks for having me as ever thanks for listening um and you can check out the description for a link to the art departmental website and interview with jim lambie the set decorator that Arne mentioned and if you enjoyed our interview with Arne, please do leave us a review and a rating uh, if you want to get your questions answered in the future you can follow us on twitter and instagram at brolly buddies to keep up with what we're doing and any future special guests that we might have on and also let us know what you thought because we do love to have a chat so until next time bye